to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon, the show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is the multidisciplinary performance artist and researcher, Alan Gilbert. Hello, Alan, and welcome to the show. So for people who aren't familiar with you and your work as an artist and researcher, who are you and what do you do? So I'm an artist on the MFA Fine Art Programme at Goldsmiths at the moment, and um, I'd say my practice is based on conveying how I feel internally towards living in an online world. Mm-hmm. And my research has currently been um, um, basically looking into how um, Instagram and social media is changing how artists work um, now. And most recently, my most recent project has been working at an off-grid woodland community, a sort of like a project. Yeah. Um, performance project as well as sort of a sociological kind of practice of research um, kind of experiencing their way of being outside of the digital economy. Right okay perfect well um, that brings me nicely on to topic one which is childhood big tech and god so my first question for you today is can you tell me about the first time as a teenager you posted something on a social media platform that got your attention like a picture video tweet repost that kind of thing? Um, yes, I was I was thinking about um, Facebook actually, and I remember I first got Facebook maybe in year year six or something. Yeah, and um, I think it was my dad who actually made a profile for me. Oh wow, okay, yeah. progressive. <laughs> I know, and because um, uh, everyone else sort of started having them, I wanted to mm. have one too. And I think the first thing was probably just posting on uh, my Facebook on my friend's Facebook walls mm-hmm. and having conversations with each other on each other's Facebook walls. But it wasn't, you know, you didn't have Messenger on Facebook then. Right, okay, it, yeah, you, yeah. You were just sort of talking to each other, but knowing that everyone else could see. So it was very, it was kind of like, that's my earliest memory of posting something. So I'd mm. be posting something and talking with my friends just on my wall. It would be something silly like, hey, yeah, <laughs> or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. Something really, like, really mm. innocent. So it, was, it wasn't about outreach or, you know, mm. it was just kind of very innocent um, talking with friends. Yeah. I see. Um, and was it, I guess, like the more sort of like kid-like mundane sort of stuff? Or did you branch out into posting about like pop culture at all at that point? Like any sort of current obsessions with like musicians or bands or anything like that? No, I think it was just very, very... Um, I don't remember really. Maybe I, we would post about going to um, like see some sort of band or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but mainly very innocent, kind of just talking with friends. Um, okay. Really. Um, maybe I think I think it was when we started, you know, posting pictures of each other, like taking selfies on like the yeah. computer camera. Right. <laughs> you know, when we didn't have cameras on mm. phones and things like that. I think I remember sort of taking selfies on my, my dad's sort of uh, camera on his computer, maybe uploading them as my profile picture. But yeah, that's my earliest memories, really. Okay, so just following on from that question, you were born in 1997, which makes you a Xennial, a digital native. Um, so do you have any thoughts or feelings about being able to life scroll through a permanent record of your adolescence? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> lots. Um, 
Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting thing when you don't really realize at the time what it means, and then when you're at a certain age, like I am now, twenty five, yeah, and then you can sort of look back in your teenage years, and it's it's a really strange thing where it makes you quite uncomfortable, and I don't really like it, and I right. don't really like seeing because um, it's not really your your life, what mm. the pictures that you post on, you know, I'm, I'm talking about my my Facebook now because that's sort of the earliest, yeah. Um, images that I have through my adolescence on there maybe I've probably deleted some by now um, I don't really I don't have a personal Instagram so I have nothing right. on there but I used to yeah but I think it's um, I think it's really strange and um, it's it kind of it, it's kind of it, it then kind of escalates into you know now modern day when you know families now post about their their you know children on Facebook mm. or on social media like Instagram, and it's like, but what 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 um you know w- without you know their permission yeah, as, yeah. as a child, mm. and it's like, but at, at the time you know, I think me personally, I'm probably going to delete my Facebook and delete mm. all my images because I don't think you know at that time there was no sort of guidance on what you should post online because it wasn't like yeah it wasn't such a big thing mm-hmm. whereas now it's you know everyone can see your profile everyone can see every, every, people you work for or yeah things like that so i think uh i find it quite uncomfortable yeah the thing i think about as well um like recently i have a friend who broke up who's in a relationship and then broke up and then literally just exercised the images of the person they were with completely off and it made me think about how editable yeah it's permanent but yeah it's also editable like yeah. you can go back through yeah. and then you also you can re-upload these images again and then it also made me think about very young like kids growing up now and this is gonna make me sound terribly old um but there was a point where your mistakes happened offline and there was offline repercussions but like now those mistakes or things you are now permanently on video on record for people to engage with and you have to be very careful um, with exactly that. yeah yeah and I think thinking back to seeing um I think I'm thinking about sort of my life sort of being you know I would get my, get together with my friends and we'd take the photos mm. and it'd be part of hanging out and then we 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 do it to post on post on Facebook and it was yeah. like very innocent still but it's also mm. like it's quite strange that that was what we were focusing on even though it was it was fun yeah it's kind of interesting how that's kind of changed mm. um, and it's probably very different now for generations now oh yeah, yeah. and there there is an element of performativeness to the pictures that are being taken there's a ter- mm. certain like pose and I don't know, maybe you've noticed this in your research, but this is something I'm very aware of that when I was, especially with like young women, there is a certain look they have to a camera, which they all have seemingly a ubiquitous kind of like look. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just wonder in terms of that sort of like language and that terms, you know, and again, like I don't want to sound uh, terribly old or antiquated or anti sort of social media with this, but there is a sort of performative learned behavior th- sort of through that and how you interact. And I wonder if that's something that you could sort of speak to perhaps. Yeah, definitely. I think it's... um. It's it's not yeah I think it's just a very common thing where it's about um, uh, female female body image and mm. female insecurity and I think there is ways in which it can be used to um, promote promote that as well mm. but actually growing up as a as someone who hasn't been on social media when they're fourteen I was mm. a lot later I still was affected a lot by it and yeah. it still kind of was affected by looking at other people comparing my p- comparing myself to others comparing mm. myself to other um lives online when it's yeah. not it's not real it's not actually what you know what mm. they look like all the time you know what i mean mm. so that i think it's i think it's 
I'm interested in researching more about um, how it's affecting young people now, mm. especially as it's um, it's it's now available yeah. and widespread at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did just sort of want to touch on your early online life um, outside of, sort of social media. Um, so I read an Art Jobs article on your practice that mentioned you grew up in a Christian household. Your father, brother, auntie and grandfather are all ordained as priests. So what was your relationship like with Christianity and God growing up? Um, my earliest memories are of um, when I used to live in Grafton, which is in a small village in West Sussex. Yeah. And um, actually at that time, you know, it's just my my father and grandfather who are both priests. My, oh, okay. my my brother and auntie have only been ordained quite recently in the last couple of years. So oh, okay. it was really just my my dad and my granddad. And um, I was probably in primary school or something. Uh, my brothers are eight and seven years older than mm-hmm. me. And obviously we went to church every Sunday. And it was this really lovely, sweet church in this in this really small village. And um, yeah, I think my earliest memories of just of just sort of being in church and. I would. I wouldn't really. I'd be my mum in the in the pews. My both my brothers were the servers. Right. And it my one of my brothers would always be late, so he'd always come in halfway through church to right. join. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Sort of out of breath from running from right. home, and I'd I'd there'd be sort of like a playroom at the back of the church um, where sort of the other young ch- children are hanging out. But mm. I would always. I was incredibly shy as a child, and right. I just wanted to be with my mum. And I just have memories of sort of building dens out of um the prayer pew uh, prayer cushions yeah um with my mum and sort of uh watching my dad preach um it was very yeah. normal really it was very normal for me um there's nothing really special about it um and yeah those are sort of my earliest memories and i just wonder this is a question i actually asked in my last interview because i was talking to a uh, openly christian like artist which i guess is like unusual now she was very sort of um very into sort of faith and Christianity. And I asked the question um, now that seemingly um, technology and like social media is like superseded like Christianity in a way, like the sense of oneself is bigger than a, a greater being or something to look over. Yeah, interesting. And I thought, well, it, um, I mean, obviously Christianity and religion, it, it can be sort of problematic. But the one thing it does allow you is to allow to think that there's something above you, that you're not the centre of the universe. There is a sense of community um, there and worship, which I believe is in, is important. And I just wondered if that's something that you could, because you, you've actually grown up in a Christian household. Is that something that you've sort of interacted with, the fact that now people are less willing to engage uh, with God per se? Um. I'd say um, I think it, it depends on your own circumstance because I mm. still think feel like it's widely um, celebrated and believed in yeah. Christianity. So I think it comes down to pre- personal preference. Mm. Um, but I think it's interesting kind of thinking about that and thinking about because we're so kind of involved within this, um, within technology and mm. not really everything becoming kind of much more, um, what's the word? Um, you know logic based yeah. or anything like that and mm. I do think that's a shame um, I think I think we're dealing with godlike technology mm. which I yeah, think yeah, is yeah. kind of like the more interesting thing mm. um, about that and about how like pe- people people like tech gurus and things who mm. have invented you know like Mark Zuckerberg and things like that and how they're in positions of such power yeah. that kind of replicate godlike mm. technology like technology and I, I think that's an interesting um aspect 
And I think in terms of technology revolutions, I guess like there's a Ford motor car, which was a big technology revolution, but he wasn't necessarily in control. Ford himself wasn't in control of people's like lives. Like you had a car, you had a car, you could still interact with the wider community. Mm. I guess people like Zuckerberg, like Elon Musk, they can literally just unperson you. They can take you off the, the platform. You won't exist and you can't interact anymore. Yeah. And I think like that's the I think that's the big differentiator between earlier technology um, revolutions in a sense. You still could um live a life to a certain extent whereas like now if you're not engaged digitally at all what do you do like where do you yeah, go it's like you don't exist it's exactly, really strange yeah. <laughs> um so in terms of big technology companies um and i want to sort of pick on like hardware companies in particular like apple sony uh, sony and dell when did you first become aware of them growing up and did you form an early brand loyalty to a particular piece of hardware so um I remember at school, um, it was sort of everyone, there was a there was a period where we all had Blackberry phones and right. we'd all kind of like, everyone had BBM, we'd be BBMing each other. And then suddenly, suddenly the iPhone turned, like, suddenly was everyone, everyone had an iPhone. Mm. And it was, um, I think, I know, you know, my friends being like, oh, you should get an iPhone. Um, like, and it's sort of like this, then you're missing out if you're, you're not, you know, you're then pushed out of the circle if you're not a part of the, yeah. um, and it's quite funny because um, how I got, got an iphone in the end was um my parents said if i go on this christian um pilgrimage festival oh wow okay um we'll get you an iphone yeah so i did <laughs> so that's my first experience of getting an iphone and from then i've always had apple products interesting uh, yeah <laughs> and how was the uh, how was that uh, the experience that you went on to get the iphone was it worth it was it you know did you um yeah it was um it was in Mossingham. um just quite a holy um place mm. and um it was just like a big kind of camp like festival yeah and um there's lots of like music there's bible study in the mornings mm. and um um yeah it was um it was, i'm glad i did it it was really it was a good experience yeah but it's quite funny that that's how yeah. how i <laughs> ended up getting my first iphone <laughs> i just wonder like in a subconscious experience from going through that particular like religious informative mm. experience to getting a phone are like the two things of like twin because um i was thinking about brand loyalty and i was thinking where does it come from like mm. um, i think the thing that i was thinking about uh, recently was I've always had a Sony like PlayStation, but where was that first identification for that particular item that would become part of my personality, part of my identity in a weird way? Mm. And I wonder if like twin with a certain physical events, like going to um, a sort of a spiritual retreat and then getting like an iPhone and then you're sort of like set on that sort of like path. Because, yeah, yeah. Um, That's quite funny. Yeah. So just... Just following on from that, you know, finally, um, looking back in your adolescence, was there a film, album or book which made you um, question technology and its impact on society? Um, I think there were like a few films that made me um, question, uh, thinking back into my teens, probably, you know, typical films like The Terminator. It's quite mm, funny. Yeah. And then sort of iRobot. I remember sort of watching them being quite terrified. Um, mm. And... Um, um, but I think thinking back to when I was doing my A-levels at school in art, um, an artist that really I remember seeing and it really kind of influenced my, I was doing sort of a project on technology mm. back then and I was sort of taking photos of everyone in the common room on their phones and, you know, the social areas and things like that and yeah. kind of making work from that. And I made sort of these oil paintings of people like, uh, I think I photogra uh, photocopied people's faces squashed against the photocopier and then... Right. 
did oil paintings of them and put them in computer oh, screens. Right. Yeah, uh, that yeah, was my yeah. A-level project. Okay. And um, I remember an artist that I'd seen that influenced a lot of my work then was Nick Gentry. And he did all okay. these paintings on sort of videotapes. Yeah. He did these vid- videotape paintings. Mm. And I think that really made me uh, think about question kind of mm. like the artist role, I guess. But that's a very small, like thinking back, I can see where my right. initial like interests were sparked or things yeah. like that. Yeah. And I guess like on a subconscious level, well, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to locate where did the, I guess like the, I guess like the worry, maybe the interest, where did that, was there a particular tipping point for you where you're like, oh, something kind of feels off or I need to explore this uh, more because you've obviously gravitated to something that's a huge subject, all encompassing, you say almost godlike technology. Mm. Um, But was there a very small like personal moment for you where you kind of, yeah, I, well, I think it was um, more in my um, in my BA, um, uh, in my final year, I think it was, I started thinking about what I really wanted to make work about and what yeah. I was really interested in. And it was, it was kind of stemmed from my own, trying to understand my own relationship to social media. Yeah. And I thought, I want, and I was, I was really interested in the psychology of mm. how, it, how it was affecting me mm. or... And everyone else and I and that's that was the initial kind of um and the initial kind of thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to explore my relationship to how I presented my personal identity online so right. I used to have a personal Instagram yeah and I and I I was I, I didn't I didn't like how that was how people viewed me okay. I didn't I didn't I didn't think it was an accurate presentation of who I was and I didn't that I felt like it was I was presenting someone that I, mm. I wanted to like people to think I look like, but it wasn't. Okay. You know? And I, I was, yeah. I, I didn't like the the fact that people compare you to your identity online. And okay. that, that was my initial um, exploration into ex- like exploring how I feel internally towards living in this online mm. world. Yeah. Um. And what do you think in terms of the presentation, what was it kind of missing for you? What was that? thing that you thought like hang on a minute no that's not there that kind of should be there or maybe that's something that you just didn't want to put out there or did you feel like you were conforming to I guess like traditional and I throw this out here like beauty standards or like keeping up with other other people in a sense I I think it's a mixture of things I don't think it was any single thing I think it was more that I didn't like the fact that you know you you, there was just a grid of photos that Mm. would present you as a person i think that was that was my initial kind of thing okay um that i was exploring yeah okay cool cool um so we'll move on to topic two and this is a uh, this is a a topic that's very close to my heart which is the artist in dyslexia i've spoken uh, previously about being dyslexic uh myself um so i know um yeah i know the sort of challenges that can present someone so when did you first discover that you were dyslexic and how did that make you feel um, I think it was actually very, very young. Um, mm-hmm. I was, uh, which is very lucky because people sometimes don't even find out till the very, very late in their lives. So yeah. um, my, I think it was in primary school or even before primary school. Um, I can't remember the exact time. Mm. Um, and I was, I think my mum took me to this um, private assessment mm. uh, lady in her yeah. house. And we had, she laid out lots of these, I did lots of like little mini tests and things where she laid out different objects and I had to, she would show them to me and then she would cover them up and I'd have to remember what the objects, what, how many objects were there and things mm. like that. So it was really kind of interesting, kind of like mind kind of games yeah. to figure out what, 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 
what, what the situation was and mm. that was when i that was when um i found out i had dyslexia um yeah i, I in terms of how it made me feel i don't i, I was so young i don't really remember yeah the initial und- like remember like when i found out or anything but i remember being in primary school and really struggling yeah with keeping up with people mm-hmm. because and or just feeling overwhelmed when I couldn't do something that someone else could do really quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think that was my, I, I thought, and I found that really hard. And I was really, you know, I was really, obs- but at the same time, it, it didn't, you know, my mum really celebrated my strengths. Yeah. And like that, that was really kind of mm. powerful. And like, mm. I, I was obsessed with Matilda when I was younger, the film. And I yeah. was always obsessed with like being this like knowledgeable person that mm. I would just, I just have books and I pretend to read them because yeah, yeah. I wanted to be like Matilda. So it's right. like, yeah. So right. I guess it, 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 it didn't, I guess it, it affected me a lot, yeah. but because I had a lot of support, you know, now it's not, it doesn't affect me so much. Right. Yeah. And the thing I was thinking about recently about dyslexia is if you have it, there is a sense of very early self-examination, which people don't really have. If you don't have dyslexia and you're a young child moving to adult, everything kind of like happens seamlessly. The world's built for you. You don't have to worry about it. But if you're dyslexic, you're tested at a very young age. You're forced mm. to contend with your mental capacities, which could be very sort of spiky. One bit you're amazing at, other bits you're rubbish at. Mm. And I just wonder, um, as an artist, as somebody who's engaging in sort of social media, was there something about being tested in a sense of self-examination at a very young age, which maybe sort of fueled the idea to be more, more curious, curious um, out in the world um, through that? Um, yeah, definitely. I think um, I think it, it's also it's quite strange being told that you have some sort of. Um, I guess there's also a psychological mm. aspect to it as well when you, you're kind of told that you have this disability, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then you kind of then question yourself about everything. Whereas, mm. And I think there's also a thing where dyslexic people um, tend to beat themselves up so much because, yeah, yeah. you know, they're, mm. and it's actually, it's, it's really not... It's not about te- intelligence, it's about the workspace or how... how yeah. So, yeah, um... I think it has. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your question. What's your question? It was. It was just essentially. I think, and I know this from my own personal experience. Mm. Of the reason why I'm so curious about the world is from a very young age. I had to really examine my own my own self. My own self was like put on an examination table and was broken yeah, out through yeah, tests. Yeah. Um, and I guess once you're put through that sort of like process, when you're forced to examine yourself and the world and how you're interacting with it or not interacting with it, I guess it just makes you inherently more curious. Definitely, I think. I think it's more. It's it's kind of you. You're kind of rebuilding your world to mm. fit you, and how how you need to work to to um be to be better to 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 get to those standards that you want to be at. Yeah, and working harder than everyone else to get there. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how I see it. And I know for everybody that their dyslexia is different. So, what were the three biggest things that that kind of affected you um, the most? Um. I think it's really changed as I've, I've as I've um, grown, and um, so things that I would find very difficult when I was younger, I don't find so difficult now. Yeah, and it's mainly because I went to uh, had a lot of support with it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mum's a learning support teacher as oh, well. Oh, okay, right. Um, and um, I'd say the main thing is sort of maybe um, writing speed, I guess, mm. and feel like taking you know 
so, some uh, maybe writing a paragraph might might take um someone half an hour whereas it take me maybe two hours yeah yeah you know yeah. it's something like that or and, and that's something that still happens now mm. and um you know really like when i was younger i would really really struggle and be like just so uh, angry and frustrated and not being able to express yeah in yeah. writing how how what i was thinking or mm. what i wanted to say and i get really upset about it whereas now it's like oh no it's not you know you just have to do it a different way i have different ways of writing right. i have different um and i so you sort of build your own system mm -hmm. the way that works for you yeah um what else um probably um memory and things like that so kind of um I have to sort of write everything down. I, I use sort of whiteboards and things like that. I always yeah. have to have visual reminders for everything. Mm -hmm. But it's like, it's, not, it's only small things. It's not like, a, you know, I'm not challenged every day or anything like that. It's it's kind of, mm. it kind of feels weird to think about it because it feels so normal to me yeah, yeah. as well. So it's sort of like, is this is this what everyone, you know, maybe everyone does this. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, what else? Um, yeah, I think, but I guess in the way that I have come sort of, you know, feeling like I have lots of ideas and there's all this kind mm. of, I guess, uh, trying to get organized. I've, it's actually made me really organized. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> Which yeah. is quite funny. I feel like I'm more organized than because, because mm. of it. So the way that I work is, you know, I do lots of mind mapping where I'm mm. trying to, you know, even when I'm doing my creative practice, I mind map all the time right. to get all my ideas down. And then I then put them into a different thing. And I use, um, I use kind of like systems called Glean when I have tutorials that okay. record what the record our conversation, then it automatically puts it into writing. Oh, okay, nice. Things like that, yeah, which yeah. is very lucky that this, the university provides for people with dyslexia. Okay, cool. So cool. I think it's also like a free platform as well. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's just it's just uh, I guess you can see them as like negative things, but also it's it's at the same time it's just different ways of working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just thinking about that, can you think back to a time when you first created a piece of art, like a photo, sculpture or painting, which helped you express an emotion or feeling that words simply couldn't? Yes. Um, well, I think it happens a lot during my art making, but I, I remember like a specific time mm -hmm. um, when on my BA course, when I first initially was exploring how I felt internally, externally um uh towards living in an online world and I, I remember um it was I decided to and I was like I was actually photographing other people and like covering them in cables and things like that and then yeah. I felt like it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't actually capturing it right and I thought oh I'll, I'll use me that's mm. what I'll do and I got okay. someone else to photograph me yeah and then I did this video where I um stuff loads of cables and wires into tights and I'm draped them all over my body um and then i got inside this kind of like a claustrophobic kind of sack yeah like sort of see-through as well and i wanted to be photographed kind of moving around kind of pushing these things away from me yeah uh, something that's actually a part of me that i can't mm. escape from and this kind of struggle and the actual physical experience of doing it, it actually expressed visually how, right. how this kind of internal anxiety and relationship we have towards social media especially how i was feeling as yeah, well yeah. so that was kind of the first initial kind of piece of work that i realized that uh, that i realized i could express mm -hmm. visually instead of in writing okay you know, so, you know yeah so that was kind of 
the beginning of all the, this. Which brings me nicely on to your practice. So in terms of your practice, as you've mentioned, it's very physical, it's very body-centric and it's spontaneous. Um, like the Window XP Performer Series, which you produced in 2020. So just following on from that question, why is it important for you to work like that? And I guess the reason why I ask this question is there's so many different like forms of art. Why is it? Why are you particularly drawn to, I guess, like film, performance, art, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think it like, uh, like I just said, I just, I, it kind of, there's a spark and then mm. it was this thing and I was like, oh, this is, this is like, yeah. I've gotten onto something here where I can express how I feel physically instead of mm. through this. Um, and I think that, yeah, using my body, it's very fluid and it's very, um, it's kind of, it, it's really hard to describe, but um, just kind of, I guess it's a, it's it's how I feel I can communicate most effectively, yeah. and and through kind of the um, Windows XP performance series, it's very it's like the way I work is that I'm responding to an environment in the moment and materials that I bring with me, so it all happens in the moment in this bodily kind of way yeah. um, towards how I'm feeling internally, and then and then I don't, I'm not I'm not planning it before right. you know I'm not, I have a, a vague idea in my head, but it all happens in the moment. And then, and then once I've done the performance or done the um, video work, and then I look back at it and I think, oh, what am I trying? What am I mm. feeling? What am I trying mm -hmm. to say in this? And then, yeah. and then that's how I can realize, oh, that's how I'm feeling. That's what I'm thinking about, which is quite. And it was a very expressive way of of um, expressing yourself. <laughs> so I guess just just going back a little bit, did you try like had you tried more traditional forms of art like painting, like sculpture and stuff, and that just wasn't quite getting you to where you needed to be in your practice yeah I did a lot of um I did some I did ab abstract painting for quite a long time I did a lot of um um it's kind of like world building in your head and things like that but mm -hmm. I I kind of got I just I couldn't I couldn't I, ca I guess I I kind of I felt like it didn't mean um, anything. I wanted to make right. something that meant something and, yeah. like, and that, that's totally personal opinion because I, I love abstract painting but for me you know I tried to do it through expressing my dyslexia and in and kind of like exploring that at one point in be my BA course and it wasn't quite I, yeah. I could never really like express it in mm. in the way that was just on a board and then and doing it through performance I felt was the most it was the most um effective way for me to express how I feel but also I am interested in sculpture and installation mm. and I think I, I, I love the idea of creating immersive environments as well yeah um, so it's not, it's definitely, you know, that is what my current practice has been. But I'm de it's definitely always evolving as well. And just very briefly for the people listening, could you just describe um, Windows XP Performer? What's that all about? Just so people oh, have yeah. a visual idea. <laughs> um, it's basically, um, if if people remember the classic um, Windows background, Windows XP background, which was a green hill and sky and blue sky. And you sort of had the Windows flag sort of dotting around the screen. And I was actually, I can explain how I, how I discovered, um, it's actually a field that I photographed myself in that's really close to my house. And I was walking, I think actually I was driving yeah. by and I looked, I looked to my left and I saw the field and it just looks exactly like the Windows XP mm. um, field. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, oh my gosh. I, and I thought, I've got to perform, I've got to do, do something with that. I've got to perform in it. It yeah, was like yeah. my initial thought. And then I was like, I was thinking about what I could do. What would I bring? Would I bring like a desk and a computer and put it in the mid middle? Yeah, yeah. Would I perform around it? Would I be like, 
Um, and then in, in the end, I just decided to do kind of very freestyle kind mm. of um, way of, um, I just brought, I painted myself completely blue and um, painted a windows um, flag on my chest and um, set up a um, tripod with my phone. Literally yeah. my phone wasn't even a, a digital camera and videoed myself interpretive dancing in this field. It was yeah, very, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, uh, yeah, so that that's the the piece um, at the moment. I did take some photos mm. as well, but it's, so it's, it's just kind of a very um, a film and I kind of edited it so then I would sort of dot in different places yeah, like, yeah. like the flag. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Nice. Um, so I just want to end this topic by quoting the Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan. I'm going to slightly change this question because I feel like we've covered a little bit of what this question was about. But um, So to quote him, there's absolutely no inevitability as long as there is a willingness to think. So a lot of your practice is based in research. So in terms of your assumptions going into I guess like social media versus you're doing conducting your research. What have been the biggest things you've kind of dispelled or learned from that so far? Um, so about how to my research methods, basically. Well, kind of like so when when we're interested in a particular sort of subject, whatever it is, we have a, maybe a preconceived idea or notion about something, mm. and then you sit down and you start doing the research, and then it becomes clearer the actual. Um, the reality of the situation or our, rea- our perceived reality of the situation because yeah. it's markedly different but I just wondered if there was a bit when you started um, in this process of engaging with social media and researching into it to the point where you're at now and whether has that drastically changed for you? Yeah well I think when it, my initial beginnings of all of this work um, was kind of without like uh, it was uh, like I was researching a little bit about it but it was more expressing how mm. I felt at the moment and, and wondering how I could how could I, how could I reveal visually how I feel internally and mm. how could other people relate to it as well? Yeah. And then it sort of escalated more into un- wait wait a second why why am I feeling this? There must be a reason. So that's when I started researching more into right. into the actual kind of okay. psychological aspect of how social media hacks our ha- hacks our psychology and mm-hmm. how it's manipulating kind of society mm. um, based on kind of manipulation based technologies. And I, I think. That then changed my practice into um, more research-based practice. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll touch on that a little bit later on as well. Yeah, it? definitely. Um, so I just want to move on to um, topic three, which is the Future After Collective. So back in March of this year, you took part in the Future After Collective group show, which was held at the former Peacocks on Catford High Street. So can you talk me through the Hyfe Studios application process that helped you find that particular exhibition space? Yes, um, it's actually really lovely because my I, I remember it was it was last last year, um, twenty twenty one, and it was during a period at uni where there was loads and loads of strikes. Um, yeah. So I think there was over seven weeks of strikes in total, like dotted throughout the year. Um, and it was during quite a, a large, maybe three week strike period, or maybe longer. I can't quite remember. And we were in the studios and. Uh, my studio mate Madeline, um, mm-hmm. she found the open call from Haifa online, right? And um, so, and then she just said to everyone, "Why don't we? Why don't we apply for this? Yeah, you know, we, we you know, we should, you know, this would be really interesting to do." Mm. Um, yeah. So then we decided, um, and everyone was just on board immediately because we were like, "Yeah, we want, like, we want to, you know." It was a really interesting 
thing where we could go outside of the Goldsmiths Institution as yeah. a group and work together. And that's right. what we were. We were a really like productive year because we really mm. wanted to be there and we wanted to make artwork. So yeah. we became a collective, right? which was really lovely. And so the way that we did it was that there were certain, I think we did sort of like proposals on the Google Doc, share Google Doc between about 40 artists. Yeah. So certain people put forward proposals of what they thought would be good. Then we did like a vote on them. Mm -hmm. And then and then we, you know, put, put certain photos of each other's work. Um, I think maybe voted on that as well. So it was very kind of, uh, it was a very collective yeah. way of going about it. And there, there were some people who were kind of liaising with them more and, you know, doing the whole, like working solidly on the application. Yeah. And then we got the application and, and, um, and um, so then the process became um, much more, um, you know, when you go to a gallery, a gallery, you know, everything's kind of done for you or the production yeah, or, yeah. you know, all that. And it was suddenly like we have this massive space and we get to use it for two months. Mm -hmm. We can we can move out the studios and work in it. And um, but there's also like health and safety. There's also. Um, how are we going to do this? What, so there was, we all got into kind of groups um, and we had Zoom Zoom meetings every week. Yeah. And um, that's sort of how we went about it in the end. And there were certain groups of people who were working on certain topics to sort of like bring right. us all together as well as working in the space. And did you have a particular role in the application process or are you just submitting your, your work? Um, I think I did put, put forward um, a proposal or I think I remember working with, something um something seems quite a while like, while ago now um i was head of publicity okay right. <laughs> for the yeah, actual yeah. exhibition right right yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, that was kind of my role mm. in kind of like so then i had a group of people that was working with me on publicity and getting print posters printed right, and i was yeah, sort of yeah. saying to everyone on the zoom call you know the way to get people to come is to invite people in person ask people you know you're not yeah. gonna you know don't just put a poster up and you know you've got to is face-to-face interaction is going to be like is, yeah. than just posting something on social media, hoping people will come, invite people, you know. And yeah. I think that's the best way to mm. do publicity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> especially yeah, it's hard to motivate people to get to to get to things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of the particular work, I think we've spoken about it briefly before, but just from start to finish, can you talk me through the creative and practical steps you took to make the performed photographic performance the new evolution? Um, and let's just start with the initial creative spark. Yeah, um, uh, it's lovely talking about this because it's uh, it was such a I really I really loved this project. And um, the initial spark was when I was making those kind of performances about how I felt internally and mm -hmm. kind of wanting to express that visually. But then I didn't I didn't I it kind of I didn't like how it was me in the images. Yeah, you could see that it was my identity, and it was about when people looked at it, it was about my relationship to technology. Mm -hmm. And I wanted people to look at, I wanted people to view the artwork and and be able to resonate with themselves in, in some way. Yeah. And I'm sure they could do that with the, with my, my with being able to see who I was, mm -hmm. I, which is then what sparked my interest in first painting my, painting my whole body. And I painted my whole body. Um, I actually asked my friend to come and help me and we went to, um, I booked the photography studio and I had my idea of what I would use. I was going to bring lots of cables and um, and um, baby dolls yeah. as well. And um, I brought an Apple computer under my laptop um, and I wanted to um, 
use those objects as well somehow yeah. but it was I didn't I had like vague ideas on my head but I was mm-hmm. going to leave it to being in the space to um experiment with it and I asked my friend to photograph me yeah and she came along and sort of she was she was painting me in the bathroom it's sort of like then having to because it was like um and um and then you know it was in acrylic paint which is really silly idea probably but I really liked yeah. the texture of it it was, it was awful to get off right right and um and then I um and then I had all the materials there. I got the lighting right to how I wanted it. And right. then I just was moving in the space and, yeah. and posing and using and responding to the materials. I was like, oh, I want to be completely tied up in them. I want to mm. be restricted. Yeah. Um, I want to try. And then it became kind of animalistic. Yeah. And um, and then I, I was like, oh, I want, I'll, I'll, I'll put all the wires and make it look like I'm giving birth to this, these 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 baby dolls yeah kind of like and that i did loads so there's not even you know i haven't shown half the photos i Mm. did there's so many um so that was the and my friend was like constantly taking photographs of me while i was doing this right so that was kind of the um creative process in making that series and i just wonder from so when you just started so you're there on set you're painted and then you just start moving. Like, what was that first initial sort of feeling? Did you, was there a feel of like, oh, I feel a little embarrassed or were you straight into the zone? Like, how did you that's get to... terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think like, how... <laughs> but you, I assume you eventually overcame that though and then you kind of got into yeah. the, the flow state. So yeah, what was... Because the one thing I would say, and it was interesting because I guess like if you don't paint your body, then you're mm. you, then you become, then it's, oh, I don't really like using these terms so much because, mm. you know, it's like the male gaze and like the female yeah, gaze, that yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. But once you once removed from that, then it's le- it's like less about you and more about the, I guess, like the human form rather than Yeah, just, just like a neutral, like, mm. um, yeah, just like a non-human human body, mm. which is like, an, like a, a, with no identity. Yeah. So I guess... Um, and what you were just saying, like, how did I feel? Like yeah. it was, you know, every time I've done a performance, uh, it's been really scary. Yeah. And I, it's, and it's something, you know, it's like public speaking that like, you're mm. going to be terrified, but then when you get going, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but you, I guess like you also, you, uh, um, I think to phrase, sort of phrase this sort of question, you don't have a problem with like being nude or like nudity in a sense, because a lot of your work is sort of, um, based um, around that and this maybe is a bit of a, a bit of an easy like low-hanging fruit in a sense but somebody's come from like a predominantly Christian sort of household around sort of like nudity and that sort of stuff mm. um, was there any sort of like personal things you had to go through to kind of get to that point where you're comfortable to perform like nude I mean essentially you are you are painted so it's not you Ellen being nude it's you as this sort of character or the artwork yeah, that you've created. Yeah I think but, that really was the thing that made mm, me confident yeah whereas when I was doing when I was performing when I wasn't painted yeah i felt much more less confident and more self-conscious mm. whereas when i felt like it's like a mask yeah and so i could then feel um like it's i embody this character yeah which then gives me the confidence to um um but also at the same time it, i don't think i don't think um the way in which i we're, I think in that situation, mm. you know, it was just me and my friend. Yeah. And although it was sort of semi-private, semi-not, yeah. um, I think it's it'd be different if it was a big group of people. I think I'd be a lot more. But I guess no. I think I think I think 
with the way in which I use it as a mask, yeah. I think that's that's what gives me the confidence because it's not. It doesn't feel like me. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I guess there is no. I guess an issue with your parents. I, I mean, I, again, like it's a bit sort of low hanging fruit, but in terms of like the conservative nature of um, like Christianity and that, or, or some uh, aspects of it, although a lot, a lot of, a lot of um, religious iconography, I can say the word, is predominantly ar- around Christ's body, his physical form, yeah. which is sort of like interesting because I guess like it may be this sort of subconscious and maybe a bit of a reach, but if you're engaged in sort of Christianity from a very young age, you're exposed to these, well, I guess, like naked images essentially. Um, yeah, I guess so. I guess there's a lot of, um, I guess, nudity within mm. um, Christian artwork and things like that, but also not at the same time. It's sort of this. There was a period when it became sort of not okay, when it was okay. Yeah. But I don't. I don't think that's um, influenced my okay. practice. I think it was more. I didn't feel right to. I think the the the. I think you're very vulnerable when you're not clothed. Yeah, I think yeah. that was the initial kind of un uh, so sort of revealing yourself mm-hmm. and your vulnerability, and that was my initial kind of like it felt right to do that yeah. in, in those first ones, and then yeah, I wanted it to be not just about you know I, d- I then I wanted to sort of like hide yeah. that I guess and make it so it's not just about me; it's something that other people can relate to. Yeah, yeah. And just just lastly on this point, was there a particular performance artist? Because there is a history of performance artists uh, that get naked, essentially. Mm. Um, was there any only ones that you kind of like looked to or inspired by to start your own practice? Um, yeah, there's a few. Um, definitely Juno Calypso. I don't know if you know her. As a, she she actually inspired a lot of my work because she does a lot of. Um, um, self photography where she photographs herself via re- remote control which is what um, I've started doing as well Yeah, and she did things where she painted herself um, so it's definitely influenced by that way of working mm-hmm. and then also Anna Mendetta is a really um, inspirational artist who did a lot of um, body artwork within nature yeah. and um, yeah definitely influenced by her as well cool um, so I just want to move on to like the last part of the exhibition. So I watched your artist talk during the exhibition um, and the audience was aware of the dangers of social media. And I guess my question to you is, do you think Western society is mostly oblivious to the online world and how it's shaping our physical reality? Or is there just an apathetic acceptance of it? Yeah, it's a good question because it's, um, I think it's a real mixture because I think, I think now we are waking up to, you know, now it's becoming more known that how social media platforms function. Yeah. I think people are, you know, aware. I think most people are aware. I think I'm sure there, you know, it's not all, I can't really speak for everyone, but it's, I think there is this awareness that has become like known. And yeah. I think there's, when you say kind of a apathetic acceptance, I feel I feel like it's kind of like a helplessness mm-hmm. because it's so ingrained within society now. It's kind of like, it, it yeah, it's kind of it's it's a really hard question to answer, and I think that's a that's like a um, a question that a lot of people are trying to do yeah. in groups and are trying to con- 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 conclude to. Mm. But I think there is this kind of acceptance of it because there's sort of no choice it, yeah. well, it feels like there's no choice but really you know there is a choice by collective kind of will I guess yeah. but at the moment at the speeds of technology mm. and the way it's kind of ingrained so much within society I think there is some sort of acceptance within that as well okay and then um 
just following on from that question, I want to again, I want to slightly change question fourteen because I feel like we've covered some of that sort of stuff. Um, in terms of the work that your fellow peers had put on on that exhibition, was there any ones that you particularly related to yourself that were exploring issues that were close to your heart that weren't necessarily socially media related? Um, I think everyone was really unique in their own way in the in the show, which I thought was really amazing that we we could all kind of exhibit together in one big force, really. Yeah. Um, I think. I think there was, uh, I can't really say what related to my own. I guess, I guess ever, I think I really appreciate uh, artists' interests in trying to make people see something differently or try to resonate yeah. some sort of feeling within someone. I, th I That's something I really appreciate about art. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, there was Madeline's mending exchange where she, um, she set up like a kind of a store at the front of the shop and yeah. people would come in. She would talk to the community. They would bring in sort of their old clothes and uh, that would that would oh, need nice. mending and she would mend them yeah. for, for them in return for some sort of material, I think it was, that she would then create her sculptures with. Right, so right, that, right. That, that kind of like then um, created a discussion with the community. So there was like a bond like that was set there within the exhibition. And then there's like Beverly's... Um, um, pieces where she kind of um, grew seedlings onto mm. old cloves, uh, shop cloves, this huge mound of cloves, yeah. and kind of grew seedlings and um, onto them, and they kind of sprouted into this like beautiful green like mm. nest. And it was it's sort of seeing kind of regrowth and things, and for the public to like watch that happen gradually over the over the time that there was yeah. there, I thought that was really special. But there was there was so much there that was so good. Mm. Um, okay, I, I can't even begin to <laughs> go into it. There's yeah. like 40 of us there. There's yeah, loads. That's a lot. That's and we a did lot. we did like other screenings where people put on events and things and did discussions with other artists. So yeah, there was there was there was a lot going on that was great. And finally, why is it important from your point of view that Hyper Studios provides you and your peers with exhibition space? Um for that specific time. Well, just Hyper yeah. Studios, it being a charity, it's an organisation that yeah. exists in the world. So why is it important for people like you and your peers that they ha have a platform like that? I think it's so important because um, it, it's, you know, it's it's not something that we're, it's not some sort of high up gallery that mm -hmm. we're trying to get into to then present. It's, it, it becomes much more on public level where it's just a abandoned shop or something like that or where we can come and use as a space like it just mm -hmm. makes sense and it's just like really vital especially now when mm -hmm. space is so limited yeah. and so expensive that it's just like I remember being so shocked when I first walked into the um the Catford uh, Peacocks um shop and it was massive and she yeah. was like yep yeah, it's all yours like do you do whatever you want I'm just like mm. obviously, no, and then obviously no, nothing bad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, but like yeah. yeah, and it was like yeah. wow, it was yeah, it was amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's like it doesn't happen very often. No, yeah. no, it doesn't. Um, so I just want to move on to topic four, which is present day data. So essentially, it's just a few questions, hot takes that you might have on on current events. Um, so the first one, very topical, is what do you think about billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk buying Twitter, um, to protect, as he calls it, the digital town square. And his reach and his recent efforts on the platform to help humanity. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot there to discuss. Yeah, I was very shocked. Um, it makes me feel very uneasy. <laughs> I think that's mm. a good answer. Yeah. Um, but also, um, but I'm not on Twitter, and I haven't been probably since I was a teenager. Um, I don't. Um, I don't have a profile, and I never. I don't think I ever will. Um, 
Um, I just think it just makes it. I think I'm I'm optimi- I'm optimistic about people realizing mm. how much influence Twitter has now. Yeah, and I think seeing Elon Musk now buy Twitter, mm. I think it's going to make people realize how. Oh, oh wait, actually this you know, political platform that is being mm-hmm. used to like, um, you know, bend people's decisions and will on very kind of serious issues around mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. And this kind of, it's a very toxic platform as well. And mm. I think it'll make people realize maybe how, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea to use this. If it's, it's, yeah. It's, and then again, it goes back to all this like kind of godlike technology and this yeah. kind of like control and things like that. And, mm. and, um, yeah, I think but also like, I, he, you know, he says that he wants to, you know, make it into a better platform. And yeah. I think, you know, um, I'd like to see if he does. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, I don't think he can singly hand, single-handedly do that. And yeah. I think it's it shouldn't be in the hands of one person, mm-hmm. especially all that, how, you know, how it functions for pol- political kind of reasons. Yeah. I think it can be really dangerous. Um yeah, I personally would just just delete your Twitter accounts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is an interesting one because I sort of struggle because I can see the benefits of social media of what it gives people, but also what it takes away. Yeah, and I think you know I've talked a lot about the bad, mm. and I think there is ultimate like uh, there is a lot of good things about it as mm. well. Um, yeah. Yeah, for as much good and bad as it gives us, and I also think uh, this is a very sort of broad. Uh, um, I guess that comparison as much as a religion as a whole has given us so much in terms of uh, like hope, religious artifacts, um, education, certain degrees. And then you think about all the bad stuff it's given us as well, like the wars, um, conservative beliefs, you know, Mm. just completely insane um, things that have kind of happened in its its name. And you just feel like, I don't know, again, like it's a bit of a a bit of a broad um, like comparison. And I guess you can't put a figure, you can't say, well, it's 50% good and it's 50% bad in a way and and how would you even make that that the argument or that case yeah and then um S- simultaneous kind of dystopia YouTube. yeah that, e- that's the problem exactly yeah. Yeah. and also what i'm struck by is because i was watching an interview um uh, recently and they were talking about social media and also thinking about like Marshall McLuhan as well, because I was watching a documentary about him and they said it's really down to the user and the reality they create for themselves because essentially, if you just take it as a tool, it's like how these people are using it as a tool. So for me, Instagram is a great place to connect and reach out to people and obviously further my podcast in my explorations of creativity and just looking at cool stuff. For other people, it's a place where they can completely indulge their narcissism. Um, other people, it's a place where they can run a business. And I guess I like get similarly with like Twitter. It's a place where people can communicate about a political uprising, tell people where there's yeah. a safe space to go. Conversely, it's also a platform where big... Uh, governments can censor people and 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 take them away and that, that sort of stuff so it's a very it's very hard and it's very sort of dizzying i, I think to, um yeah and i guess that's that's my own sort of personal take no, on it definitely yeah and i i totally agree with that and i think um i think it gives so much opportunity to people um mm. to have um social media i just i think for me i think it, it's just that the way that it functions mm. i think is 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 the problem um, so if it didn't, if it didn't, if it functioned on humane technology, then it would be great. <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. Um, which brings me nicely on to question 17. So what can you tell me about the documentary, The Social Dilemma, and why does it mean so much to you? 
Um, um, so uh, the Social Dilemma documentary is um, a um, it's a film, um, and it's basically kind of led by Tristan Harris, who's, who's um, the who created the Humane Tech Company, mm-hmm. and he's basically. It's him and several other like um, core members of people who worked on Facebook, Instagram, back when it was very kind of just started all currently. Mm-hmm. Um, people who created the like button, th- things like that. People who have been behind the way that these th- systems run, basically. Yeah. And um, they kind of, um, it, it, they kind of, it's really interesting because they've done it in a way where it's kind of interviews with them and them talking about it, but they've also done this kind of like creative kind of drama mm-hmm. hybrid kind of um, documentary where it, they have like uh, actors coming in, who've come in and are performing kind of mm-hmm. like visually how it affects you. And they have sort of um, also um, CGI and things like that where they've kind of created like shown you how algorithms works it's really mm-hmm. hard to actually understand what an algorithm is i think yeah um i think uh, that was and how yeah they kind of just showed like the way in which platforms function on persuasive technology and how persuasive t- design has been like the core of making social media platforms kind of yeah. function mm-hmm. or even you know the iphone and, and things like that um it's and it was called growth hacking. Yeah, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and it's it's a it, it kind of when I first watched it, it kind of was so nice to have kind of my feelings kind of acknowledged yeah. Yeah, and like yeah. kind of like by these people who worked in these industries. Mm. So it was it was such like a um, yeah, it was just like I just watched it and I was like, oh my gosh, like, it was just. It's just like, yeah, I don't mm. know. I don't know how to describe the feeling. It was just like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And um, I guess, um, yeah, I can talk a bit about how I've been screening them and things as well. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. please. Um, so I kind of was through this kind of like research. I um, I wanted to start having, so the question of the documentary is kind of like, how can we redo this? How can we, yeah. like, what can we do to like, like get away from what we're doing right now how Mm. can we and it's kind of making people realize how they function and things Mm -hmm. like that so i i personally was like researching a lot about how how social media impacts artists um specifically as sort of like a narrowed down kind of theme and i was interested in how you know uh the art industry is very kind of instagram like centric at the moment so like yeah everything happens on instagram so you have your uh if you have an artist instagram there's galleries on instagram it's where you find out about open calls it's where you find out about exhibitions yeah it's become like the main platform for communication worldwide anyway mm-hmm. but like for for artists in general you know it's not like an everyday job where you don't need instagram um you just have it for your personal life yeah yeah it's become very adamant within being successful as an artist Right. So I was interested in screening these, these, this documentary and having discussions with artists about how this, this is potentially affecting our work as artists, how we work, our tension, yeah, and things like that. So, yeah, I did an event at the Haifa Studios um, Futures After exhibition that we did, and screened it, and we talked about you know whether you can be an artist offline now. Mm. How does it affect our creativity to live in this sort of hyperactive hive mind workflow? Yeah, h- workflow. Sorry, and um, yeah, and it was really interesting because 
you know, my aim was to sort of be like, what can we do about this? But then it's like, yeah, well, really, you know, that it's it's really hard to even imagine mm. not having that. You know, yeah. if you're a well-established artist um, who who um, I think this is what one person said, you know, if you can hire someone to do your social media for you. Yeah, then yeah. It doesn't matter. Mm. But like for young people like us, there's not really a doesn't feel like a way out. That was no, sort of, not, so that's sort yeah. of like my current kind of research and relationship to the social dilemma and how they they're actually the whole reason that they've done that if they they have like a website yeah where they have you you they provide you with discussion guides on screening the event and having discussions okay. that's the point of it basically yeah yeah um okay so just on this point about um artists and instagram and something sort of come to me is like does it even fa affect like the presentation of the actual art that you're creating? Because it has to fit on squares. And I noticed on your um, Instagram profile, you have like a multiple square of the new evolution of you, mm. which takes up a large size. But I just wonder, I guess like that forms like a, is it, is it a triptych or something when you do a series of sort of images and they make one whole thing? I yeah. yeah, I think yeah, that's I think the name. So. Um, I mean, and I guess like, so do you think subconsciously like art and how it's presentation and even what's being created is subtly being changed by the fact that it has to be exhibited on Instagram and it has to, you know, yeah, go viral? Yeah, definitely. Because, uh, you know, like we discussed about how, you know, people's, you, you kind of like have mm. to have your own uh, whole different artwork that's tailored to Instagram yeah. that you present mm -hmm. outside of your artwork. Right. And how we're all kind of becoming kind of like visual artists in a way because mm. it's becoming, yeah. um, and you know, you the way you photograph something so you kind of make something it, you know some people I'm not speaking for every artist but you know how it affects when you make something how you photograph it and how it will look online yeah. and things like that so I guess yeah it's kind of exploring that kind of side of it as well as it kind of affecting um affecting you know the important part of being creativity which is to have time and space to think yeah and sort of working in a very hyperactive mm. high moment workflow, we're constantly responding to messages and things like that. How that how that's affecting? Because personally, that's affected me this year, yeah, last year. And um, I was interested in how we can explore that as artists and what solutions we could come up with right. for those sort of issues. Yeah. Um, so I would like to move on to the next question, which is: What fictional piece of technology do you wish was real, and why? Um, I guess I was thinking, um, uh, my initial kind of, um, thing I can think of is, um, some sort of, um, technology, I guess, that, um, children, um, some sort of like specific phone yeah, or, okay. um, that, um, children, like teens would have, and uh -huh. it would have some sort of social media that wouldn't be like the social media we have today. Something okay. that they would be able to communicate that isn't based on, um, manipulative like um, platforms like or uh, advertisements and things mm. like that that they would be able to communicate with each other on that's my that's my initial kind of thought of what yeah. a fictional technology that I would like because I think that's that's the main kind of scary issue that I feel is quite prominent at the moment so it's almost like two digital paper cups yeah <laughs> with a string in between <laughs> for kids I think yeah, back to yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I guess um, I know from my sister and her kids that she's got like an app on her phone that she can monitor kind of what they get up to and they can kind of mm -hmm. be seen. But I think it speaks to a larger point of like how kids communicate with each other 
because you've got real world communication and obviously Twitter is a great example of like online communication and the mm. vast pitfalls of it. And I just wonder in terms of how we communicate with people, how we look at each other now, that's, that's, that's all changing. But then again, um, you know, historically when the photograph was invented or the painting that, it, you know, these visual arts made us reassess how we looked at the world and how we looked at each other. But I guess exponentially this has gone a lot quicker and I guess like its impact and reach is a lot more insidious than going to say like an art gallery in like the I don't know, 16th century and seeing some sort of masterwork. Mm. It could be a very pound, profound experience, but that dissemination, that particular image was a lot slower. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, and also, um, this is random, but I actually went to the National um, Museum. I believe it's National Museum, National Portrait Museum. And there was a exhibition, and I'm really going to blank on the name, um, but I think it was like, Monet or Manet or some very famous um Monet yeah. yeah I think so so there's Monet and there was this other this other guy I think it it probably was Monet but the, the, he basically and um was a teacher to this young um artist I think her name was Ezra um again I'm going to blank on the name of this I think it's Magoles something it sounded something like Spanish or like Italian or something um, but the point for me badly remembering going to this art exhibition was the fact that there was a certain point in time when female artists weren't allowed to tapple, tackle certain subjects because it was seemed to be like morally damaging um, and um, female artists couldn't go to art school it wasn't allowed so they have to go to private studios um, or charities and they could only paint certain things um, and I just wonder in terms of, in terms of that being a very s tight form of censorship and I guess like the morality police or a certain section of like morality, which, which was men, but then other men came in and said like, no, this is, this is wrong. Women should be able to paint and do as they sort of like, please. Yeah. During a very long, um, comparison to this, to sort of social media in terms of, um, censorship and you being an artist, is there certain topics and things um, I guess as a female artist, as an artist, as an entity, do you feel that you perhaps you can't tackle now for fear of like quote unquote cancellation or something along those sort of lines? Um, I think now it's become so, um, I just don't feel like it's, it's like that anymore. I just mm. feel like, um, and in a way social media has given us the, the kind of like, I know there's censorship on sort of, um, certain things like you know free the nipple and things like that yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. still kind of like censorship still um on those things but i feel like um i don't personally feel like there's anything that would i would feel would be um cancer cultural yeah anything like that cancer culture um on females but um well, no, I mean, yeah. just in terms of your particular practice of mm. subject matter that you might want to tackle but maybe you're a little bit reticent um I guess I guess um it's always difficult talking about um how um talking about kind of the issues with social media mm. and then posting on social media so I guess it's it's a really hard for me th so it's, yeah, there's yeah. a sort of juxtaposition which I actually look look into mm. my work where it's always this kind of like weird relationship where how do I then show it otherwise you know yeah. it's kind of it's, so I think there's um or you know there's so many other benefits to with it as well I think there's there can be you know it can it can become it can become quite finger wagging in a way 
where I wouldn't I wouldn't want to like be like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess for you, um, rather than the actual content or the material that you would produce, it's more like the medium in which you choose to show it in. Because at one hand, you're, uh, I guess, like examining, researching the pitfalls and benefits mm. of social media and making people aware of it. But there's also that other question of like, yes, but you're using it. But as yeah, we've spoken yeah. about, there isn't really like an option. There really isn't an opt out. You know. Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, okay, so just moving on to my last question. As a young British artist based in London, facing yet another looming two-year recession, higher interest rates, low growth and unemployment, do you feel optimistic about continuing your practice over the next couple of years? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's, it's, I think um, you've got to be optimistic, really. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, artists always find a way, but it's, 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 it's becoming really hard. And yeah. especially even doing an MA, it's absolutely crippling, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, financially. And living in London is, you know, prices are so high. It's, you know, how having to pay rent and then also pay for a studio yeah. that I'll have to do after uni is going to be really hard. And I think it's, it, I think it is just going to be, um, um hard but i think there's you know artists always find a way and mm-hmm. i think that's the important thing and i, th- I think the important thing is to always stay positive and i think um no matter what um i think art always comes through the cracks somehow just like hyper studios yeah yeah yeah, yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well there's gonna be a lot more free shop space i guess yeah. oh god yeah <laughs> Yeah, um, and they do say in times of recession is one of the the most, um, I guess, like, so 70s, if you can remember that far back, was a, was a time of great social upheaval and the punk movement that was spawned from deep, like, recession. So in a weird way, some of the best art comes from the most financially crippling times. Yeah. Although it's not fun to, to go through <laughs> yeah, that. No. You might produce really great works of art, but it'll, it'll suck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay. Um, so my final question is, what's your dream project if money and time wasn't an issue? Um, yeah, I love this question. And it's so hard because I can think of hundreds of things. Um, but I actually thought of quite a um, a very big dream project that yeah. I'd love, which would be to have like um, a kind of institution where it's like uh maybe like a detox art therapy institution where Mm -hmm. uh there's um you know like a residency an exhibition where people are exploring kind of our relationship to technology in Mm -hmm. different ways and then it was also kind of like a digital detox kind of like center where there could be like immersive rooms and uh like uh, art therapy so i guess it's kind of like i don't know if you know like marina bramovich like institute and things like that where it kind of like there's kind of like workshop things Mm. center i guess something like that but more kind of like my own practice (laughs) (laughs) it's a very big big project (laughs) um i well i do think like in terms of you have like yoga retreats and stuff digital detoxing Mm. i think is going to be a big big thing exactly yeah so yeah especially i think it's become it's going to become much more prominent within like the mental health sector as well Mm. and having sort of like therapy for that which i think would be interesting to sort of explore as well yeah yeah 100 um so lastly where can people check out your artwork and research and da, 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 follow you on social media <laughs> <laughs> yep um so i have a website um ellengilbert.co.uk that's probably where most of my up to up to, up to date stuff is yeah. i don't post that much on instagram um but 
I do have Instagram, which is I think um, Ellen Gilbert with a lower dash. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you know, I have my email on my website if you want to reach out about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently in the process of like going through my research projects that I'm going to find a way to sort of maybe put on my website. Yeah. Um, maybe do like a blog or something like that. So um, I'm sure that'll be coming up soon. Perfect. Well, thank you yeah. so much. I've really enjoyed this interview no, and spending you. time with you today. So thank you so much. This is radio. This is, this is radio. Radio.